Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to Real Wealth, Real Health, the show that empowers you with insights, information, and inspiration to achieve your version of financial wellness. Learn how to balance living a full life today with planning for the future. This podcast is brought to you by Alpha Investing, a real estate-centric private capital network that provides exclusive investment opportunities to its members. And now, here are your hosts, Ada Piedrico and Daniel Coca. Hello, welcome to another episode of Real Wealth, Real Health. Our guest today is Vivian Sue. Vivian is a CFA, an entrepreneur, investment executive, and independent board member with over 20 years of financial services experience. She's worked in institutional finance as a portfolio manager, creating investment products, doing actuarial work, and she is what the industry calls a quant, or she was uh, in her past um, professional experiences. And Vivian's career career path actually led her to become a social entrepreneur. And today she's the founder and CEO of Lendinate. Lendinate is a unique marketplace lending and donation sourcing platform where nonprofits and supporters leverage their collective power for the greater good. I would call it a form of crowdfunding for investments that support nonprofits. It's a beautiful platform. And in our conversation today, we talk about Vivian's career path, how Lendinate became the nexus between her quantitative analytical investment background and her passion for philanthropy. There's so much to learn about how nonprofits operate, how they use debt financing, which is a giant $600 billion market to largely finance real estate of all things, and how Lendinate connects institutional investors and individuals to some very thoroughly underwritten nonprofits on their platform and so much more. I am sure you're going to enjoy this conversation as much as I had in having it. All right, Vivian, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's my pleasure. I have been investing in Lendinate, your beautiful company, for a little while now through through my IRA. And when I found you and when I found out about Lendinate through How Women Invest and How Women Lead, and we had Julie on a few episodes ago, I was just, I was awestruck in a way about how you pulled together this beautiful concept of investing and nonprofits and crowdfunding all in one, all in one package. And I really want, I really want to dig into that. And, and before we do, you know, you have a a very institutional background in, in finance and financial services, and, and you managed, what was it like several billion dollars of portfolio at, at one point in your career? Let's just start there a little bit. Like you started in big institutional finance. What led you to take that career path? 
Yeah, well, it it wasn't by design. Let me just tell you that. (laughs) But I thoroughly loved that job where I ended up, you know, with uh, investment management experience. What led up to it, actually, if we go all the way back, is my math major. I thought after, you know, majoring in math, you know, there are maybe a couple of things I could do teaching or actuarial science. And I tried that to, you know, the actuary path. And it wasn't quite for me. It was maybe a little too uneventful. So I ended up joining a company in Berkeley that focused on investment analytics. It's called BARA, now acquired by MSCI. Mm. So that's where I started my journey with investment analytics. And then I eventually joined American Century Investment, Schwab, and managing the large portfolios that you mentioned. As Schwab specifically, I especially loved the wide range of responsibilities I had in, in, instead of just managing portfolios, I actually did get to work across the company with various departments, including product marketing and legal and technology. So I'm sure we'll get into is a good start for my deciding to take the first step into entrepreneurship. Okay. Wow. So actuarial science. Oh my goodness. You, Not you, for the faint of heart. I was going to say, or for the faint of mind. I mean, I mean, your ability to, to is it really calculation based actually? Cause like, obviously you have a propensity for math and numbers and that kind of analysis. Like I'm just going to sidetrack us for a second. I'm, I'm, I'm curious, like how much is, is it calculation based? I imagine a lot, like it, it must be heavy, heavy in the calculations. It is quite heavy in a very specific way. There are two major branches of actuarial science, one one to support uh, insurance companies and yeah. one to support pension, pension sponsors. Oh. So both are have the similarity, just different contexts, but both are using probabilistic models to forecast, in one case, longevity, in another case, you know, kind of work life, you know, the, the pension aspect mm-hmm. and the funding requirements for pension plan sponsors so that they know how much money to put in the plan. If they promise an employee, you know, if you retire in 30 years, you get, you know, some, some money. So it's very calculation driven, but a lot of that is already pretty standardized. So it's not like each time it's, it's creating out from scratch. Right, right, right. And did you find yourself as one of a few women? Were there a lot of women in, in that field or what was that like? I didn't stay in the field long enough to really network within the field. My, mm-hmm. I know my boss, the, the person I was working under, she was a woman actuary. So I, I can see that actually be pretty well suited for women professionals. I, I describe it as uneventful sometimes, you know, it's just, you know, you, you like the numbers, numeric aspects of work and not necessarily, let's say the networking and the outgoing kind of things. That's a really good job. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So, and that word came up that really caught my, my attention when you, when you said it at first, you said it wasn't eventful enough. And, and now you've, you've transitioned into being a social entrepreneur. So what was the impetus for that? Because that's got to be like highly qualitative. Yeah, very. <laughs> so I'll go back a little bit too into before my making the decision. So after, I, I don't know, 15, 20 years of investment management related kind of positions, especially at Schwab, I thought about creating investment products a lot. In my role as seven years at Schwab investment management, I think I launched or, you know, me and our, our my team launched four different new mutual funds and as uh, maybe, you know, some other strategies, non-mutual fund strategies and reposition different ones. So that was on my mind all the time. Mm-hmm. At the same time for the past 15 plus years, I focused my nonprofit 
volunteer work in fundraising. So I was, you know, of course, being board members, I led a capital campaign for my church. And at the same time in 21, 22, I took a year off and I was a volunteer full-time development director. Uh, It's like a mouthful, but there was maybe the first time I was inside a nonprofit as taking on a staff role. And that's kind of where I kind of felt, okay, a lot of people want to support this nonprofit, but the financial ecosystem to, to get the money there is kind of clunky, but I didn't have a solution until 2015. And that, that in 2015, I got the idea of what became Lendonate. So my investment and my philanthropic mind kind of literally merged in, into a concept that's a little bit more seamless for the investor donor. Wow. That's like, it's like the perfect merging for, for you, as, as you were saying, because you were doing philanthropic work. I'm curious, do you find that a lot of, of nonprofits, I'm going to say it this way, they don't really operate like businesses. Like they, they don't, you know, like they don't operate that way. They don't think that way. Maybe they don't have anybody on staff that way necessarily, especially if they're a little bit a little bit smaller. I wonder, first of all, like you coming in with that, mm-hmm. <laughs> you probably saw that and, and just, yeah. Could you speak to that a little bit? Of course. So I'm going to answer, let me answer that question first. So whether they operate like a nonprofit, I mean, sorry, nonprofits operate like a business, it depends. And sometimes mm-hmm. when the answer is no, perhaps the answer is they shouldn't. And I'll come back to why, why maybe they shouldn't, but to, to think of the nonprofit, we all know nonprofits from the perspective of being asked for donations. I, I'm sure almost like without exceptions, all of us have, have been asked. So what do we hear? We hear the message they want us to hear, which is that there's a great need that they're serving and more the more money that goes to them, the more that they can serve. And if they're asking for a donation, they're going to present a, a more vulnerable picture of them. Right. Because if like, hey, we have a billion dollars sitting around and donate to us, that, that's not going to work. <laughs> so that's why we I think we all kind of skew towards a bias that we think nonprofits are weak. And some are. There are over a million nonprofits in the U.S. The nonprofits we tend to work with are the larger a third, if not a fourth. Many smaller nonprofits, they are they they are set out to serve a very specific need in their area. So they're not really even trying to run like a business. They they know exactly which community they're serving and you know they're not looking to grow. Like this is exactly what we want to do. We have a one-person staff and you know 10 volunteers and we're good. That's what I meant. Like sometimes it, not every nonprofit needs to like, okay, what's our, you know, exit strategy or what's our, you know, exponential growth. On the other hand, there are not a lot of nonprofits, especially those that selectively decide to reach out to Lendonate because they have the next big plan, because they have, you know, major projects and they're looking for financing. So unbeknownst to a lot of people, nonprofit financing is actually huge business. Think of the U.S. consumer credit card debts. I think it's by now, I haven't updated my information for the last two years. I'm going to guess is between 800 billion to a trillion in terms of size. The nonprofit debt size is about 80% of the U.S. consumer credit card debt size. Wow. So most people are like, what? <laughs> they, they borrow? They do. They actually, a lot of it goes to real estate financing. So I'll stop there and then let's see, you know, and we'll, we'll take it in pieces. Yeah. Wow. What do you know? It goes to real estate financing. I mean, some of that, some of that makes sense. And also 
I guess understanding that really all money is debt and, and, you know, the, everything is debt really. And, and that debt makes the world go round. I think, I guess that would make sense. And you're right that the, the impression, the perception of nonprofits is one of vulnerability and, and weakness. And I think it's really important to state that and to see it and that they're not, they're not weak. I just wonder maybe in, in some of their positioning, but that public perception is, is really, is really strong. And it's, and it's really about helping others. And it's admirable that, you know, nonprofits do want to keep their costs down, of course, because that money needs to go to, to people who, who need it. So yeah, I wouldn't have imagined that the debt was that high, but if I really think about it, then it makes sense. I can't imagine that they are raising donation money rather that they're, they're getting donations for CapEx. That wouldn't make sense to me, right? I mean, is that a line item issue? They, they just use different terminology. So okay. for example, we recently completed a loan. You might've seen this because you invest for a Bay Area nonprofit that supports affordable housing and is a land trust. We'll leave that that kind of that, that to the side. But here's a situation, beautiful story, where a another nonprofit founder, she passed away and just beforehand she had already planned to donate her residence to this housing nonprofit. Say, you know, you can have my home. There are some conditions. One was there was someone living there previously who was unhoused, you know, homeless, and she had let this person stay there. And so no longer unhoused, beautiful story already. And she said, you know, if you take over, we would love, you would need to let this person stay. Additionally, because she also founded a nonprofit that is more like a soup kitchen, you know, also serving in poverty alleviation, we would like for you to use this house for that benefit. So that now she's created a joint collaboration between two nonprofits after she has passed, providing a house to do all that beautiful work. And why was Lendonate involved? Because, you know, the house is already donated because there was a small mortgage that was still remaining on the house. So in order to take over, they need to either pay it off or just kind of assume that debt. So we took that debt over and then they expect to pay it off, you know, once they fundraise for it and prepay the loan when it's done. So there are a few touch points of philanthropy, a few touch points of investment, and then they really merge into a single very impactful story. So can I ask a, a, a clarification question? Please. So out, outside of the example you gave where I understand the, the usage of, of debt, like where are all of these other nonprofits? You know, why, why are they borrowing so much capital and, and what is it being used for? Yeah. In terms of what they're using it for, the $600 billion that I described of this size, 75% of that is used to finance real estate. So think of the schools, the hospitals, the, you know, the churches, performance center, affordable housing, I can go on and on. These are very real estate heavy type of nonprofits. Then where do they get their financing of that debt? There's close to 500 billion of that debt is used to real for real estate financing. Approximately half of that are held by a little or more than half are held by banks that lend to them. And the other portion are, are were structured as tax exempt bonds that are on the market. So they qualify for raising money in a tax exempt bond, just like muni municipalities. 
So that's why it's so top heavy into real estate focus. Now, it, coming back to Lendonate, we've uh, the largest loan we have done was to help facilitate a $37 million real estate construction, again, for our local Berkeley nonprofit, beloved nonprofit Berkeley Repertory Theater. But where, if I were to describe like the need, Daniel, your question, uh, besides real estate, the general need is to resolve a chicken and the egg problem from doc, for nonprofits. In a regular for-profit small business, let's say, I perform a service, you pay me. In nonprofit, they get earned income just like that. So that tends to be immediate unless <laughs> your contract is with the government. So a lot of times government grants or it's not truly a grant, it's, you know, they have to earn their service, comes in arrears. So a prime example of affordable housing project we're working with in Southern California, they won an RFP from the city to develop affordable housing. Now, in the past, when capital was available, they get the money and they start construction and do all that. In the past couple of years, that part of bond financing from the cities or municipalities are no longer available. So now they need to go find the money so they can build it in the end, get paid back. So this chicken and the egg problem is new to some, not new to others that have always been working with within the government grant. It's not limited. I didn't mean to just paint a, a negative picture of governments. They definitely are very key stakeholders to nonprofits and really good partnership. But just the way that things work is that you perform the service, we'll bill you in arrears. Hence the need for capital. Hence the need for a bridge. Loan. Sorry. <laughs> Thank you for the No, 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 no. I mean, you, you yeah. said it. I, 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 it, it just like it like that's so interesting about the about the bonds i i discover all kinds of new investment products every day <laughs> <laughs> and it's really neat right if you think about you know to investors the name the term bond or investment notes is the investment term behind it are basically loans that are you know secures these these notes who do you want to lend to? What type of entities or people do you want to lend to? Of course, those that have a high propensity to repay. Yeah. At Lendonet, we expect in the long run, as we gather more information, that we will prove, my hypothesis, a hypothesis that the nonprofits are the best borrowers there are when compared to individuals, small businesses, corporates, and you know whoever else. Why? Because the propensity to repay hinges on two things, the ability to repay and the willingness to repay, right? So if we do our job right, underwrite the nonprofit as if we would underwrite anybody else, especially, except we do have a specialty in underwriting nonprofits, analyzing their financial picture. If everything, all things being equal, we believe that the nonprofit leaders, because of the conscientious leaders, leaders that they are, the ability, uh, the willingness to repay would be the highest of all the categories. Think of 2008 when global financial crisis, people who are over leveraged in buying homes and investment homes. And then it's like in the end, it's like, oh, wow, I'm underwater. What do they do? They, you know, I'm just going to walk away from my debt, right? So that's fine. You can take my home. Not to say nonprofit leaders won't do it but we've talked to so many of them. They ask the questions that are proactive. Oh, I'm reading your loan agreement. I see this clause. I just want to know if we do this, whether we would violate it. They actually really are very deliberate people, very cautious and prudent leaders that they want to make sure that they do the right thing. So we love partnering with them as there are borrowers to offer the investment notes that we can to investors. That's phenomenal. So 
let's tell people what Lendinate is specifically, because I'm pretty sure at this point, everyone is, is like wanting, if they're not already on the website, but just, just to hear it, just to hear it from you. And I will preface this by saying that, as you know, from Julie Castro Abrams, learn this about Maimonides, the Jewish philosopher who says that investment is the highest form of charity. And I feel like Lendinate embodies that in the most beautiful way. So I'll preface Lendinate that way. And, and if you could tell us a lot more about it. Thank you. I, I will try to do better than our two minute video on our website, but if I don't go ahead and watch the two minute video, it'll explain everything. But basically our philosophy is that a lot of investors, social minded investors really don't want single purpose tools. They want to be be holistic and integrate everything that they do in a very easy sort of fashion, not a binary decision as in, yes, I'll do this. No, I won't. Or I do it now or I do it later. So, so this is what we've built. We our process starts with the nonprofits applying for a loan. We ask all the questions just like a bank would about them. And we, you know, have play 20 questions and back and forth exchanging information. In that process due to, of due diligence, you know, our underwriting, we then assess if they qualify, what rate they qualify for. The rate is what we call our ceiling rate, which is also what we believe is the fair market rate. Some loans may, you know, because they're so strong, they're maybe closer to four or 5%. Some loans are a little bit, you know, more uncertainty, they're maybe closer to eight or 9% interest, for example. We present each case on our website with their stories and financial background and the, the use of funds and all that, the, the, the whole picture. And let's say you look at an investment and say, hey, I actually like that. It's a school or it's a whatever. And the fair market rate, I'll pick a number, let's say is 6% interest. And you say, great, I'm like you said, I'm using my retirement funds. I really need to you know, get my 6% interest. So I treat this as my fair market investment. So I'm taking, let's say I'm investing $10,000 and I want 6%. And let's say Daniel says, you know, not only do I love their cause, actually my kids go to the school or something, and I'll just take four. Every investor gets a chance to offer the, not only the dollar amount, but also the interest rate you charge anywhere between zero to that market rate. You can also add on a donation already upfront. And our system, the technology is already built to prioritize more generous offers ahead of market rate offers if the loan is oversubscribed. That way, in the end, we package, let's say the, the loan need is $100,000. We package all the best offers to fill that $100,000 bucket. Instead of receiving a 6% interest loan, the nonprofit now receives the weighted average interest rates, let's say 4.9 at this point, and then maybe you know a couple hundred, a couple thousand dollars of donations while we sourced it. And then every month as they repay, we take that interest repayment, or not just interest, re repayment, and reallocate it back to each of the investors based on their own specific rate. So whether you're using this as a impact, social impact investment, I, I, you know, every time I invest, I just want 2% or a fair market rate investment, and you can tier your own offer too. It really is a way to customize your investment as well as your donation, because you can choose to click on a button. Once it's all done, you're looking at your dashboard, you have 10 loans on your, on your dashboard, and you say, you know, I need a more more deductions this year so you can choose like loans one three and five and say you know what i want to forgive you know five hundred dollars each to them and we take care of all of that on our platform 
Oh, wow. I didn't <laughs> realize that about the loan forgiveness at the end. That's yeah. So now I understand your background and this. <laughs> now that all comes, that really all makes sense because it's in the back. It's complex. Yeah. In a way, what, what you're doing, it's not like, it's not really straightforward. And uh, yeah, I, I mean, I invested in the most recent one was the, the India home, the oh, India yeah. seniors, the India seniors home. And yeah, I wish I had more funds in my, in my IRA. I mean, I'm sure for, for, you know, a lot of people listening are investors and we, we put more of the interest bearing investments in, in IRAs versus, versus outside of them. But I tell everybody that I know about, about London Aid because it does, it, it, it is about helping other people and, and doing it in a way that feels good. And, and so I do like that mechanism of the, of the being able to like bid and give a different, give a different rate or like take a different rate. And the other thing I really like is that you can ask questions and get answers from, you know, from, from the nonprofit and, and I find that really good. And so you type it up and so everybody can see the questions in case people do, but to be honest, I, I've rarely seen questions. I asked one once because I was going through the financials, my very first investment. I really wanted to understand. I had all these, and I had all these questions, but I think usually people it's a, they trust that you've done the underwriting. And I also think that when it comes to this form of investing in, in, in charity, I suppose is, and I may be making an inference, but that people are happy to, to do it without drilling and like grilling them about everything the way we do in, in business or the way we do when we do our real estate investing at Alpha. You would be surprised how some of the nonprofit leaders love to answer questions. Actually, most of them really do love to answer questions. We've had one where usually like you write them a question, even in email, within hours, they come back with like a prose of, wow, like they really thought this through. And then, you know, sometimes you ask about, well, what about plan B, right? If you didn't get that kind of revenue, what would you do? Well, not only did they think about plan B, they thought about plan C and D. So I must say personally, I, I'm always very impressed by the thoughtfulness of the, these leaders. Sometimes they don't get to t share that side of them. Because they know they only have limited con connection with potential donors when you when we're wearing wearing our donor hat, so they don't always focus on well here's our plan B. <laughs> but because we're talking about loans, things that need to be repaid, so we do ask them a lot of those type of questions and really can tell whether they have been thoughtful or and, and planning. So I'm so curious, what percentage of people select a, an interest rate that's below market? Ah, great question. It depends on a few things. The cause. So we found that the loan that I think still is true to date, the loan that received the most below market, I think they dropped three whole percentages, like from a ceiling rate of seven point something, and they got just under five, was a cause that serves the, the unhoused population, the homeless com community, by providing mobile showers to the encampments, right? So it's a cause that almost like we don't even need to say a thing. Everybody understands the cause. There are other ones that tend to receive closer to market rate or maybe at market rate because their causes are more nuanced and less broad-based. I don't want to say less compelling, just less broad-based where people feel like, you know, actually the 6% does sound good. And then it's an easy decision, just 6% that. But a percentage, I don't think we've done weighted, I don't have the stats, but I would say majority of them 
hover close to market rate, especially when the loan is large. So the largest loan we've sourced without like outside institutional partners, just really on our platform was about a million dollars. And when we're talking about funds that size, people are truly investing because it's an investment. And I'm glad you brought up institutional investors. I was curious who investors are outside of outside of individuals and are is it only accredited investors? I don't remember. Yeah, it is. Right now we're only operating under 506C, which is accredited investors. So while we set the investment minimum really just to $100. So but accredited investors tend not to you know, spend their time on a hundred dollar investment. So our, our typical investments are larger than that. But yes, accredited investors only. In as far as individuals, especially high net worth individuals, their wealth is more layered and complex. So we have individuals, even though they themselves are making the decision or jointly with their wealth advisor, they can direct their funds and from regular investments, from their donor advice funds, private foundation, retirement funds, as you said. When we go to institutional partners, those are usually in the multi-million dollars, and we partner really well with community development financial institutions that specify in, in specifically invest in nonprofit lending, as well as banks. Banks, well, banks are very structured in what types of loan and how they can lend it out. So while all bankers really want to support nonprofits, sometimes the structure is so rigid that they, while they want to give the loan, they cannot for various reasons. So we partner really well with them, either because they send them to us and we do the loan, or we resolve a problem for them so that we can co-lend. We partner with a bank, for example, where they were senior in position and we were junior in position. So as a junior lender, we can establish the ceiling rate to be higher than the banks, right? Because we are, we're higher risk. And in, some investors really love that, that, you know, don't give me the three to, well, when interest rate environment was lower, like, I don't want to see more of the three to 4%. I know they're strong, but I, I, can you get me something higher? So sometimes by taking a, a junior position, we can offer that to the right type of investors. Oh, that's really interesting. And, and I imagine that banks and institutions and, you know, sophisticated investors too would understand that it's an asset backed loan. So it yes. has the collateral. Right. We're working on one where the senior is a CDFI and as for a school in Southern mm -hmm. California, and we'll be oh, actually, I think we just put it on a website. It's a private school and they prefer to keep a little bit more of their cash than, than the senior lender wants them to, you know, to commit. So we're now junior behind a senior lender and it all works out for everyone. And they expect to raise enough funds to pay off everything, both of us in three years, which is why the terms are three year loan for a real estate purchase. Wow, that's fantastic. I wanna ask a, a, a timely question, I guess, and it is around, around interest rates because we are going in, into a rising rate environment. Is that gonna hurt nonprofits? Well, it hurts everyone yeah. <laughs> or if, if you're investing. So that's good news. <laughs> yeah. So for investors, good news, right? Because you'll be seeing more and more of the rate of return without the same level of risk that you saw that you needed to take a couple of years ago to get the same type of return. For borrowers, individuals or not, I mean, uh, nonprofits or not, including individuals, that may create a problem we'll see just like the fed would say you know let's see how how this goes and whether rates go up again so far the after the pandemic i think that time really allows some of the more well-positioned nonprofits 
to create a strategic plan. So we're seeing actually even more so than before the pandemic, applications for financing real estate. They recognize that this is the time to you know, lock in some rates, get their dream to come true, to move into permanent property, for example, or in other cases where their program, like affordable housing, is about real estate. They have a strategy the, to buy a bulk of real estate. For example, we have we're working talking to two, if not three, nonprofits of the same type, even though they serve in different causes. They want to buy residential houses in quantities because in one one nonprofit serves adults with disabilities with the, these homes that are designed or retrofitted for that use. The other are for at-risk youth that have aged out of the foster care, so ages 18 to 21, before they really you know, turn into adult, uh, rather than just dumping them out of the foster homes, this is a transitional residence for them. And so both are really impactful causes. They need acquisition capital so that they can be competitive in the housing marketplace to buy these homes and then have time to line up, whether it's grants and financing. Okay. So I have, I have, can I ask a question real yeah. quick, Adapia? So the examples you give about like the market rates, the, the numbers you're using makes me assume that investors, lenders view nonprofit borrowers as riskier than individuals. Is, is that the case? I can't, well, I, I think of course there's always the, that assumption that may be there. When we look at the financials, we really try to be very objective because one can look at the need for donations as a weakness. But let me ask the other side of that coin. If you know, we're a for-profit company, London is a for-profit company. If all of a sudden you say, hey, would you like to receive some donations, you know, like free money? Like, of course, <laughs> why would I not, right? So it can be looked at actually as a benefit. They just really need to make sure that their budgeting is sound and, and, and you know, current. So for example, each of the sub-industries should be looking at the benchmark. If they're serving, let's say if there's a school and there is actually a pretty standard ratio of earned income versus donated income. If they stray too far from their benchmark, something might be off either because they're leaving money on the table, they should be fundraising more because other schools get more donations or they may be, you know, the other way, like, mm, are you charging too little? So there are, there is actually benchmark to each of these industries. And if they're serving the low income or no income population, they, we should, we would not and should not see any significant earned income because they can't pay. So it is a hundred percent grant model, and we have to recognize for it, that for it. They some nonprofits hire very top-notch development directors, so and and grant writers, so that if we can see, let let's say year after year, they're able to get a hundred percent grant and it's increasing. How is that weaker than any for-profit company? So we take that lens and evaluate them based on each of their benchmarks. Gotcha. Yeah, it's it's challenging though, right? Because I think my gut reaction is I'm more comfortable depending on revenue, particularly recurring revenue of a for-profit company than I am like the potential for future donations, right? It just seems like there's a lot more volatility around like, will people continue to donate if there's 8% inflation, you know, over this next year, what will happen? What will happen to the, the revenue of these nonprofits? So I think that all makes sense to me. It's something admittedly I've never actually thought about, but it's a, a really interesting, interesting project you're working on. 
that's why we're we're doing what we're doing. It is true that you know we're usually you know investors like to be compensated for uncertainty. So therefore, it is ch more challenging when the underwriting model is the typical bank underwriting model. And you know banks have their underwriting model designed to evaluate for-profit companies, corporations, or or and lending to nonprofits is an outgrowth of that model. Like, well, why don't we just take that and apply to them because they have a balance sheet, they have an income statement. But in reality, what why we are critical to in this space is because we understand better as to that donated capital. Some may think, you know, it may be volatile, but if we're able to see like, oh no, they received this type of grant and has been consistent for them. And in this space, you know, we know that let's say that type of grant is consistent, then to us it's less of an uncertainty. I used to do quantitative equity investments like at, at you know at Schwab and American Century, where you know to create to to trade portfolios, I did portfolio optimizations, you know, like all these things. People oftentimes refer to us as black boxes. Like, oh, that quant, quant investment is black box. And to which I respond like, well, it's black box to you. <laughs> but we design every element inside that box. We understand how it works. It's like we're in the engineer of the car as opposed to the car salesman. And so we know how to tweak the model to make certain adjustments. So here, using a similar analogy, investors or bankers are less familiar with what makes nonprofits tick. They may see that, oh, you know, risky because, you know, who knows whether the grant will come. Well, there are there are ways to assess that for a higher certainty than maybe the average investor. So we love analyzing, asking them a million questions and translating that into more understandable terms on our platform for investors to consume. And as Pia said, you can ask your questions at the time. They love answering questions. Yeah, and all the financials are there and the story is there and they have their videos. And so you can do like the way we present a deal with our underwriting, it's it's very similar. And Vivian, I was going to say, you called it the black box and I'm thinking the big brain. <laughs> I'm thinking you guys are called the big brain. Vivian's got the big brain in the oh, room. So. It really is our whole team. I, 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 you know, obviously, okay, I am the founder, but we really bring people on that we think really are good fits to build out this team of knowledge. So I have been, you know, portfolio manager, our COO, Lynette Pang, and Adapia, you've, you've emailed her before. Awesome. She also was a mutual fund portfolio manager before and for 20 years at American Century. And then our credit strategist and the prior chief credit officer both have had roles within banks and credit unions as chief credit officer or regional credit approving executives. So we do very much start out with the lens of what does the industry think of this loan? And then when we don't have the expertise in-house, we go outside and we pull in the expertise like investment bankers. Yeah, thank you for that. This is, I've so enjoyed this conversation. I can't wait for everyone to hear this. You're going to be hearing this while you hear me say this because it'll be published. But I, there's one last question that we ask all of our guests and that is what does wealth mean to you? That's a great question. Wealth to me, if we start with, I'm thinking of concentric circles, like at the core of it, of course, wealth means money, what I have, and, and then, you know, I'm moving out, right, what I have, but then what I do with it is also wealth, how I leverage my money to influence other capital and, and help guide it to causes that I care about. Sometimes it is socially impactful, you know, causes, and maybe other times it's others. So it's a combination of money, influence, 
And then my network, because, you know, with me having met you and other people like you, the wealth is money and the people around and the network around me. That makes a very holistic picture of I bring my whole person and I bring my whole network to try to steer money and wealth and attention to the areas that are needed. So I don't know if that's too vague, but I do think very broadly when it comes to wealth. Now, I used to think, think very narrowly. Wealth is, you know, like the money you have and I wanted to get a rate of return. But I think now in a new world and especially with what I've been focusing on and talking to so many different types of stakeholders in this ecosystem, it really that definition should be broadened. Oh, I love your definition. I, I don't think it was vague at all. And the idea of the concentric circles, and there is that saying that your net worth is your network as well. Yeah. So yeah. that said, said another way. Well, Vivian, thank you so much for joining us today, for sharing about Lendinaid and your experience and, and all your expertise. I really appreciate it and appreciate you and everything that you're doing over there at Lendinaid. Thank you for having me. I love this conversation, like exploring all the different ways to support nonprofits. Absolutely. And informing and educating people about them. I mean, I don't think anyone, unless you're in the industry, really understands we have this perception. I Maybe just the last thing I'll say, maybe nonprofits have a PR problem. Yeah, sometimes. Okay. They, they do. And, and for many, many, many reasons, of course, resource limitation is one. But yeah, no, they, they do. Actually, you reminded me of one key point, if I may throw this in. Yeah, let's do it. Yeah, you were probably thought of the question, but didn't ask it is, well, what what do investors get in terms of rate of return on our platform? Oh, yeah. <laughs> because everybody gets to choose their own rate. So we haven't really published any you know statistics from a ROI perspective. But recently, I did look at my own portfolio, and I have committed and I have done to invest in every single loan investable on our marketplace. So personally, I invest in every single loan. So I looked at two things. Well, actually, one thing they're related. My own. Oh, before I say this disclaimer, of course, this full disclosure past performance is not indicative of future results, but I looked at my own portfolio and I have chosen to take a more philanthropic rate sometimes, more market rate other times. Since inception, my annualized return, if you will, was a little bit over 5% interest. So kind of like thinking of investing in, in private debt notes, about a 5% interest for me. And then we've had no, this is across the board. We have had no defaults no loan workouts needed so far, not good. <laughs> so we are very intentional in choosing the right nonprofit partners and we do decline those and send them maybe to other sources like grant opportunities if we don't feel that they should be taking on debt right now. Oh, amazing. I'm glad you, I'm glad you, that we added that, that last point to the, to the conversation. So now I will let you go for real. Thank you again, Vivian, so much. Thanks again for having me. Thanks, Daniel and other Pia. Thanks for tuning in to Real Wealth, Real Health. We hope that you've enjoyed today's episode and found it both informative and insightful. We welcome all your questions and your feedback about today's episode. And especially, we welcome your questions about specific topics that you would like us to cover. So shoot us an email at podcast at alphai.com. And if you have a moment, we really appreciate ratings and reviews as it helps us grow our online community and our interactions with you. And we'll also be linking to a number of relevant articles on topics that we might have touched on during our conversations. Some of them are broad, some of them are technical, but we're always 
aiming to provide information that helps you better understand the mechanics of building this healthy financial foundation, especially if you're looking to do this with real estate. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.